as a leader, as anyone who wants to build trust with a partner in a relationship, whether it's a business relationship or a personal relationship with a customer, with really any stakeholder, if you want to build trust, I believe in the power of flaws. I believe in the power of vulnerability. I believe that those leaders in the world that we operate in today who can never acknowledge any imperfection, that their strategy is uh, may not be perfect, that they don't know the answers to every question, that they lack credibility. Come on this journey with me. Each week when you join me, we are going to chase down our goals, overcome adversity, and set you up for a better tomorrow. I'm ready for my close-up. Hi, and welcome back. I'm so excited for you to meet our guest today, Michael Mislansky. He advises Fortune 500 corporations, industry associations, major litigation practices, and nonprofit organizations on what to say, how to say it, and most importantly, why it matters, how CEOs, companies, and entire industries communicate, whether during a crisis, like we've seen many recently, in advertising, public relations campaigns, or with investors. Congress or the American people often means the difference between success and failure. Clients from Pfizer to Bank of America, Microsoft to Starbucks. Oh my gosh, we've got a great uh, case study from Starbucks. Michael works with all of these people to understand the public mood, challenge conventional wisdom, and transform not just what they say to key audiences, but how they say it. He's the author of Language of Trust. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Heather. When I went to your website initially, the one case study or business example that jumped out to me in such a big way, it was so simplistic yet so profound, was the Starbucks instant coffee example. Will you talk us through a little bit about how that small tweak in language made such an impact? Sure. Well, I think so. Every time we open our mouths, we're making a choice about how we communicate. And uh, you can make good choices or you can make bad choices, and that often impacts how you're perceived and how successful you are in communicating what it is that you're trying to convey. And so Starbucks is getting ready to launch their first instant coffee, and they thought it was great. But every time we went out and we talked to people about instant coffee, the what we heard was they don't really, it's not high quality, they don't like it, they think about those granules floating at the top of the coffee. And so if we called it instant coffee from Starbucks... People had no interest in it. Um, but instead, by simply flipping the order of the message, by saying it was Starbucks coffee in an instant, all of a sudden the emphasis and the focus was first on uh, how people might think of Starbucks, which was a positive association. And that halo then made the instant coffee seem better. And so really this very simple flip in the order of language turned something from being almost dead on arrival to an incredibly successful launch for the brand, just by understanding that insight that you have to you have to know how people are going to perceive you and your brand and then adjust accordingly. So what, I mean, it, again, it's so simple, yet incredibly powerful translates to huge revenue differences if somebody is thoughtful and strategic about this, and this is all that you do. How many companies actually are thoughtful in regards to their word choices? Well, I think you know more and more companies realize the dangers of getting their their message wrong and have become much more sensitive to not saying the wrong thing. For I think a growing group of companies that translates into being more deliberate and thoughtful about uh, how they communicate. Uh, but there's still plenty out there that don't. And I think that one of the interesting things is that everything that we do as individuals and as companies communicates. Right? It's not just 
when we do a press release or an advertisement or the really obvious communications, the way that we engage with customers or with prospects communicates, the way that we deal with employees communicates. And the thing that many companies still need to work really hard to do is to recognize that what they're trying to convey in one channel or to one audience or at one time is often contradicted by their behavior or their message or their their actions someplace else. And so that's the real challenge is looking across all of your communications and your actions and communicating a consistent message and being really deliberate about that. So there are so many great examples recently of some really impactful moments where people use certain word choices and what a profound impact it had on audiences globally. And I was getting looking at some of you had an article that talked about in 2022, some of the biggest, most impactful moments, one being Ukrainian President Zelensky. And another great example that I thought was Tom Brady. And I was hoping you could talk us through some of these really relevant examples. Sure. Well, uh, you know, the Zelensky example is when at the beginning of the of the war in Ukraine, he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And it was one of these things we talk a lot about about how you're framing the conversation, how you want people to view you and the message that you're trying to communicate. And in, you know, in that, in those two phrases, he really conveyed this sense that, you know, I am not going to run. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to fight and I'm going to tell it like it is. And I'm the kind of person that you can get behind. And so it was one of those moments where I think all of the, probably all the betting money prior to that was on this guy who was a comedian running for cover at the first resistance and that Ukraine wasn't going to be able to withstand the attack from Russia. It proved to be really telling of how things have played out. And as tragic as as things are over there, they've shown that they really did. They continue to want ammunition and they're going to fight. And so it was just one of those moments that's very memorable. We call it a language moment that uh, that captures the the zeitgeist, and certainly his mentality at the time. I, I want to piggyback on what you're saying about him in that recently he was here in the United States asking for funding from the Congress and House. And and it was interesting, a couple of things. It almost seems like he's one of your disciples in regards to really fixating and being so intentional about word choices and, and so much more. The way he showed up, the way he dressed, number one, I thought was incredibly strategic that he showed up. He wasn't wearing the same navy blue suit that every other man in that room was wearing. He came in wartime clothing in an effort, obviously, and very impactful to have that vision instead of language in this instant really resonate with people on what's going on and that he isn't actually sitting there with everybody else. He's in a very dangerous situation. And then two, and I'm going to botch it if I try, but he asked for funding from us, but did not use that language. Instead, he used language, something like, it was, it was incredible, but it was almost like reverse psychology where he was saying, I'm here today to ensure your future freedom yes. by your choices, yes. that you're, something like that. Yes, no, I mean, so one of the most important things that you have to do to be an effective communicator when you're trying to persuade somebody to do something is know what's in it for them, right? And one of the things that he has done masterfully is that, when he talks to people outside of Ukraine, this is never about Ukraine. It is never help us. It is about what Ukraine stands for in the broader context of, you know, of the world that we're operating in. And so it's an investment in the future of the Western world, in the future of all free people, in the future of a global economy that works. And 
that reframing is really powerful because we all feel like we are invested in it in a way that we wouldn't feel if this were just help us in Ukraine because we were attacked by bad guys and it's the right thing to do. He really does an incredible job of that. It really was eye-opening to me how thoughtful and the reason why it's so eye-opening to me, I am not thoughtful in that regard. So I, I was, you know, I bow down. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is something that everyone can learn from in regards to any approach or any meeting that you may have, not even such, you know, such a large scale issue. All right, let's get to TB Tom Brady. Mm. And what did you think about someone on your team wrote an article about his yes. recent exposing his personal um, situation? Yeah, I got a lot of shit going on, what he said. And, you know, I think... So here you've got a guy who is has achieved just incredible things, is viewed, and I think kind of viewed himself in many ways as this perfect, almost- The goat. Right? He's the goat, right? And he does everything perfectly, and there is no vulnerability there. And all of a sudden, strange things are happening. We don't necessarily know what's happening at, at that point until he says that. And he can choose one of two paths. He can kind of continue to be- the straight-faced, kind of robotic almost individual that doesn't acknowledge that he's human. And then what often happens is we want to criticize those people when they're down. We'll support them when they're up, but as soon as they're down, we'll go after them. But when when people uh, who are perceived that way show some humanity, they show some vulnerability, all of a sudden we're like, wow, there's like there's a real person in there. And we're more likely to support them when they're down than you know than want to go after them. And so what he did, whether it was intentional or not, it was it was definitely honest. And he communicated in a way that I think everybody can understand. You know, certainly anybody who's a parent like I am, like there's a lot going on. And uh, and you get pulled in a lot of different directions and you can't do everything necessarily, or sometimes it gets overwhelming. And so I just I think it was a powerfully authentic moment. And I don't actually like using that word because I think it gets overused. But that was one of those moments where it went totally against type. And that's often a way that you can demonstrate real credibility. When you say something that people just don't expect you to say, it has a lot more impact than when you are following your normal script. And this is something that you work with many CEOs on. I know that we were talking prior to recording today about on your wall, you have um, blown up my bad. And I thought, that that was something that, you know, you were uh, pointing out as something funny and you shared with me that that's actually a great reminder for you, for your clients to always be owning mistakes. Can you dive into a little bit about why that's important for leaders? Absolutely. So I believe that as a leader, as anyone who wants to build trust with a partner in a relationship, whether it's a business relationship or a personal relationship with a customer, with really any stakeholder, if you want to build trust, I believe in the power of flaws. I believe in the power of vulnerability. I believe that those leaders in the world that we operate in today who can never acknowledge any imperfection, that their strategy is, uh, may not be perfect, that they don't know the answers to every question, that they lack credibility. Those leaders who are seen as the most credible are the ones who recognize that you don't get everything right all the time. And other people may have a better answer some of the time. And if I tell you that I'm wrong when, when I did something that was either wrong or just not as good as it could have been, then when I'm doing it right, you're much more likely to believe in me, to trust me, and to follow me. And so it has these benefits that I think for, for generations, the 
old kind of male-dominated culture was very much one that didn't allow for that kind of vulnerability. And that doesn't work nearly as well today. No, it definitely doesn't. I have personal experience working side by side with someone in a leadership position that wanted to appear perfect and tried incredibly hard. I mean, constantly exerting effort to showing that there was this perfect person. And in fact, I watched the distance that was created from people to her and resentment because people felt they had to live up to that same extreme, which wasn't real in her instance to begin with, but it's impossible for anybody. So I I couldn't agree with you more. That is a flawed strategy, old school strategy that is not effective. One of the things that you also mentioned to me was this idea of fake it till you make it. I actually have a chapter in my first book about that. And there's a lot of conflict that brings up a lot of emotion with people. Some people hate that concept. I personally love it. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on fake it till you make it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I was talking to a a group of college students the other day, and many of them wanted to be entrepreneurs. They were talking about, you know, how do you start when you don't have a lot of experience or if you kind of can't prove that you can do what you want to do. And I said, if you look around and you think that everybody around you doesn't have imposter syndrome, then you're, you know, you're totally mistaken. I think everybody has something that they are putting on a, on a face when they go out in public. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, they're, you know, trying to present them their best self and overcome that, that insecurity about something or that fear of not being received that you want. And, and that is, it's faking it, right? I mean, it's what I've seen over and over again in, in my career is that there are times where I'm overly cautious and I end up achieving what you get when you're overly cautious. And then there are times when I just step in and I'm, and I say like, there's no reason why I can't do this. And you know, you tend to be able to do more than than you think you can. You know, we have uh, in our uh, organization, and I've worked with others over time, you know, people who are more introverted and extroverted, but there are times that you have to be extroverted if you're in a client service business uh, like mine. My wife is an introvert, but she knows she's like, I have to go out and uh, and put on high extroversion when I'm going to go and talk. Uh, all of it is about kind of knowing what role you need to play to help yourself in a given environment. And uh, and if you can do that, it's not changing who you are. It is simply, you know, stepping up to the moment and, and trying to make the most of it. CBDistillery.com is giving you an exclusive offer and it's huge right now. You can get up to 30% off everything. If you've struggled with sleep, stress, or pain after physical activity, CBDistillery.com has a targeted plant-powered solution just for you. I love hearing how many of you have seen improvement in your daily life, thanks to CBD. So if better sleep, more calm, and relief from discomfort after physical activity sounds good to you, you should explore CBD. Don't miss this massive sale and get up to 30% off your order. Visit cbdistillery.com and enter VIP. That's cbdistillery.com and enter VIP at cbdistillery.com. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, and South Dakota. When I started podcasting, an online store was the furthest thing from my mind. Now I'm selling my group coaching on the regular, and it is just so easy, all because I use Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to, did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soaps or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling. Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got fired. Launching my own business seemed so intimidating. I didn't know how to set up a website, and I really didn't need to. Shopify does it all for you, and they make it so easy. It was that breakthrough moment for me that I realized, I can do this. I can go to work for myself, thanks to Shopify what I love about Shopify is you don't need to have all this technology information ready to, you don't need to know how to plan and run things. You just need to go to the platform, turn it on and know what you're selling. And Shopify is going to help you figure out the rest. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries, including your girl right here. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Monahan, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Monahan now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Monahan. No matter what stage you're at, they're going to make it easy. Share with us a little bit, and I know your book does a really good job of framing this up, but how does it work to, to work with you and, and work with your team? I know that you you have so much experience doing this. You have so much data that you leverage, you know, so much, so much research case studies that proves that your strategies work, but how does it actually work when someone comes to work with you? How does this messaging and clarity come to be? Yeah, well, I, so I think typically... When we are working with clients, they're coming to us and they say, we have a message that we want to communicate and people are not getting it. Either they don't understand how good we are, or they don't understand why we're different, or uh, they don't appreciate how much we're doing in order to uh, to help them. And I would say that, you know, if when they say, if my customer or if my stakeholder would just understand I say this is going to be a long and healthy relationship because nobody has to understand anything. Like our job as communicators is to make it easy for us, for our audience to understand what we have to say, make it easy for them to believe what we have to say, make it easy for them to like what we have to say. And to do it all, I believe really strongly while while telling the truth, but finding the right language to do it. And so when when clients come to us, what we the way that we approach things is we say, look, the first step is let's understand what it is that that you want to communicate. What's the substance of it? How is it that you're communicating it today or you think you should communicate it? We then have a, a process that's grounded in uh, kind of a deep understanding of behavioral science and a real focus on language and framing to say, all right, why don't we approach it in a slightly different way? We're going to try and say the same thing, different uh, different language. And then we're going to go out and test it with your audience. And that testing may be in a 
in a focus group. It might be in a, in a survey. It might be uh, in any number of other methodologies that we use. But the point is, and our, our business is built on this idea that it's not what you say that matters, it's what your audience hears. And so we come up with a number of different ways of saying you know, what it is that we're trying to communicate. And then we ask the audience that we're trying to reach, how do they hear it? What is it that they interpret? Why is, you know, how do we know to take that instant coffee and move it to the end instead of leaving it at the beginning? Uh, and, and when we test it with, with audiences, they, they generally give us the answer, you know, and then ultimately we build a strategy out of that. And one of the things that is, is really powerful to me and still amazes me each time we go and work with a different client. And I think you probably see as well in the work that you do is that Industries have so many different challenges and every company is unique, but there are so many areas of commonality, you know, that there are certain things that just, uh, they work. There are certain things that don't work. And, you know, if I want to connect with you, I have to find a way to make the conversation personal. I have to find a way to connect with you. If I talk about myself the whole time, I'm going to be much less successful. And that's true, whether I'm talking about, you know, a, a drug in, in uh, pharmaceutical industry a financial services product or you know any number of, or any other industry anywhere and and so we're often finding those uh universal truths and then uh, and then identifying exactly the right words to communicate that truth in that context uh on behalf of that client to that audience so when you're speaking about that i'm thinking of and i believe it was your book i'm sure you'll enlighten us where you use the example of a 401k and a a, a company trying to encourage people to contribute to their 401k and then you framed it up four different ways and showed how differently people receive that can you share a little bit about that uh yeah so you know there are if you think about saving for retirement there are all different ways to talk about the benefits of saving for retirement. And on the one hand, it could be about living the retirement of your dreams. Well, actually, I'll tell you. So one element of it, which may not have been what you saw, but we ask a question all the time about retirement. And it is, which of the following describes the retirement uh, that, that you want? And there are three answers we give. Is it the retirement of your dreams, a comfortable retirement, or a retirement that maintains your lifestyle? And if you look at uh, historically what most financial services companies have promised about retirement, it is running on the beach, taking these trips, living the life you've always imagined. But if you ask Americans, but it's true globally as well, what retirement they want, it's a comfortable retirement. It's one where they get to spend more time with family and friends. Because for most people, you know, dreams are dreams. And they don't necessarily think about retirement as a way to do lots of things that uh, they haven't done. They want financial security more than financial freedom. Talking about the language of comfortable retirement, having the peace of mind of knowing that you don't have to worry about money, that you've got your expenses taken care of, and you can spend time with the people that you care about most, often resonates much more than saying, you'll be able to go off and do whatever you want, because people don't necessarily believe that that's possible. And so when we talk about you know, 401ks, it could be the difference between talking about a long-term future. It could be talking about saving a little bit today and how that will help give you the confidence to retire in the future. But each frame and each message really communicates a different aspect of what it means to think about retirement. And it's kind of remarkable how 
differently people will interpret those messages from the way you might anticipate. Oh, absolutely. That was such a great job making that example in the book. But now that I'm listening to you, there's so much validity to what you say. I'm getting anxiety thinking, oh my gosh, I have to start breaking down messaging on every single single thing I'm talking about. How does someone give a keynote effectively now? It's going to take years to, to research this and develop it. So how do you advise people? What you know? When should we be looking at the messaging and, and when are we just showing up? Well, so I, I think first, I suspect that you've figured a lot of this out because you can tell from how people respond to you most, right? And so I think the places where it becomes most evident that you need to work on it is when you are hoping for a desired reaction and you're not getting it, right? And so if you're out there and you know, you're nodding your head at me right now, and that's a good signal to me that I'm uh, hopefully heading down the right path in terms of of engaging you, I'm sure you you have, maybe you haven't, I have looked out at a, 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 an audience that I'm speaking to and gone, oh no, I'm like, I've lost them. They're, you know, <laughs> this this is not the reaction that I'm looking for. Well, let me give you a hack. That's when you stop and say, wait a minute, did I lose you? And you need right, to re-engage right, right then. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but there are a lot of messages out there where you know that, you know, A, the stakes are really big. You, you don't want to get it wrong. Uh, the people that you're talking to are really important, you know, and so again, you, you don't want to get it wrong or, you know, it's a complicated issue or it's an emotional issue or it's a politicized issue. And those are the places where it becomes, uh, I think, really most important to think about how have you framed this? Have you considered who your audience is, what they want? There's one saying that I use a lot, particularly in the in the realm of persuasion, it's good for Thanksgiving dinner, which is the question of when was the last time you changed somebody's mind by telling them that they were wrong? Never. Never. <laughs> right? And so most of us, when we want to when we want to persuade someone, we're so convinced of our truth, of what we believe to be true, that we just want to tell them everything. And if we just give them all of our facts, then it's going to change their mind. But, but that's usually telling them that they're wrong because they've got a different set of facts and beliefs. And so, you know, that's a place where you've got to say, if I really want to change your mind about something that you don't believe, I better think about what you want, what you need, what you believe, and then build my message from there as opposed to just telling you what I think. It usually won't work. Yeah, that's that's very true. And I've experienced the same thing. It's, it's nearly impossible to, to do it that way. All right. Where does the or how important is the power of storytelling in all of this? Uh, well, uh, storytelling, you know, as we've done throughout this conversation, is the way to bring these concepts to life. And that by giving you an idea, but then showing you how that idea exists in the world is really powerful. I think stories are essential. You know, we often talk when we're talking to companies, we talk about the fact that there are there are stories that are nice to hear, but they don't really move a conversation forward. Uh, and then there are what we call scalable stories. And those are stories that are good stories in their own right, but they are indicative of a larger point that the company's trying to make. And so, you know, if I tell you a story of one example of something that I've done, let's say we've done work with companies on telling their philanthropy story, and they tell one story about their volunteer efforts. That's a story. It's a nice story. It might be great to know that employees are going out and they're, you know, building uh, a house in the Habitat for Humanity. But 
it hasn't yet become a scalable story because it hasn't been connected to a larger point that you're trying to make about the organization. And so stories are essential, but it's not the story alone that matters. It's how you connect it to a larger point and hopefully many other stories that reinforce that point that really become powerful. That's, a, that's again, another element that I hadn't thought about. So thank you for sharing that tip with me today. I will be applying a lot of this back to my own business and into my own conversations. One of the things that I noticed through some of your materials is this idea to drop the negative instead of focusing, and I saw this in some of your case studies too, instead of focusing on what your competitors aren't doing well, focus on what you're, focus on the positive. And what's interesting to me is I've had Chris Voss on the show a number of times, who's a very mm. famous negotiator. He has a strategy where he leads with the negative to hook people in. So I wanted to hear what your direction was different from that. Well, so I think in general, what we see is that if I want to bring people along with me, I've got to give them a positive reason to do it. If I want to separate people, uh, if I want to divide, if I want to paralyze people, I use negativity. Right. So going back to ancient rhetoric, that that is a core idea of like how we bring people together. We use a positive vision for the future. If we want to rally our base. If we want to get people to stop, if we want to divide, we use negative language. Now, there are uh, there are times where a negative prompt or a disturber can be very helpful in setting up a conversation, but it needs to be surrounded, at least in, in my experience, with something positive. What do you get out of this? Why should you come with me? What are the positive things that uh, that you will find? And I think not knowing exactly what he said in that context, I imagine he was talking about kind of what you would lose if you don't do leave the hostages behind, if you don't, you know. Uh, and But part of that is also then creating a vision of keeping what you have, which is positive. And so there's a little bit of nuance to it, but, but I think, you know, companies often uh, have a tendency to to talk about the negative, to say, if you do this, something bad, or if you don't do this, something bad will happen. And over and over again, we see examples uh, that show in our research that it's the, instead of saying that, it's if you do do this, this will happen. And the positive outcome that gets people to move. And so, for example, if you go back to the retirement example, and I say, if you don't start saving today, you will not be able to retire when you want and I'm your financial advisor, for example, chances are you're not going to feel that happy about working with me because I've kind of scared you a little bit, threatened you a little bit, and maybe paralyzed you a little bit. If I say, look, if I help show you how you can start saving a little bit today so that when you get to the point that you want to retire, you're able, I've now kind of set myself up as a partner, as a guide, as a support, and I've given you a solution instead of just a problem. And so chances are you're going to be more likely to want to work with me than the other person. And so that's where we see a lot of the positivity versus negativity really playing out. So does that mean that you don't, you're not for scarcity marketing? I am not. So some of it really depends on how you present it, right? Because there's scarcity marketing that says you kind of can't have this. And then there's scarcity marketing that says, I'm going to show you how you can get it, right? So act now, in some ways, is a positive 
right? If you do this, you will get this, as opposed to, uh, you know, whatever the inverse of that would be, that is just, you're not going to be able to get this. So it becomes a question of whether or not I can give you access to a, to the solution that you're trying to get to, or to the positive outcome that you're almost always trying to get to, as opposed to just basically telling you that if you don't act, you're going to miss out. Okay. So this is so funny. Organically, this just led to another point that I wanted to dive into. In both instances with the scarcity marketing and the Chris Voss story, I did not give you proper context. And you Hmm. talk about the importance of context. Can you give us a little bit of color on that? Yeah. So, I mean, context often determines what conversation we're having. In fact, so I may have been talking about entirely the wrong thing, right? And that would be my, you know, my mistake, uh, particularly if I was actually just having a uh, somebody was pitching something to me and they didn't understand the context in which they were having the conversation with me. And it was a terrible conversation. It was really like they said nothing that resonated with me because they didn't understand what my needs were. And so setting the context is often, you know, sometimes it's really understanding who you're talking to and and what it is that might be important to them or move them. And then once I do that, it may be how how I set the context in coming back to you and and giving you a response. And so what, what an example of that might might be coming back to the Chris Voss example is if I said something to you as simple as, let's say I was trying to do X, I've now set the context in a certain place. And that makes it much easier for me to be an effective communicator in terms of talking about that, as opposed to not telling you what I was trying to achieve and then just trying to do it. Um, but there are there are all different ways to use language to set the context. Uh, sometimes it is talking about things at a very tactical level. Sometimes it's talking about them at a, at a very high level or, you know, moving the conversation. We see it a lot on uh, when you have good politicians or, or good communicators where you ask me a question that I don't want to answer, I can reset the context or pivot and answer a different question, but it doesn't sound like I'm evading the question that you've asked. So context plays a really important role in how we how we interact with one another, how we interpret information, uh, and ultimately, uh, you know, whether or not we are successful. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. I want you to know that finding ways to be more efficient, cut costs, and get rid of errors and mistakes can completely transform your business, boost your performance, 
at the same time. This is why you need NetSuite now. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash Monahan. netsuite.com slash Monahan. netsuite.com slash Monahan. Are you tired of the stress and chaos of live launching? Who isn't, right? But if you've tried going evergreen, you know that's not the solution either. Hello, low conversions. So what's the answer? The Circuit Sales System is designed to make sales for you every single day while giving your audience all the excitement of live launching without you ever having to live launch again. What would increasing your current yearly revenue by 40 times look like for you? Okay, nobody's making any income guarantees here, but that's exactly what Nikki did for her business when she developed her circuit sales system. The circuit sales system is the automated system that combines the best of both live launching and evergreen with none of the worst. Think high conversions and high predictability without the chaos or risk. Get the free on-demand video training at circuitsalesystem.com slash confidence. Get the free on-demand video training at circuitsalesystem.com slash confidence. I actually randomly did a post on LinkedIn this morning about labeling, and I'm very interested to Mm. hear your opinion on how powerful labeling can be if you think it should be used. And by labeling, I use the example of crooked Hillary in, in the post that, you know, she'd been labeled and whether it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or, or a Republican, you're probably going to remember and have some emotion a- around that labeling. But then also I've seen in media instances be labeled like quiet quitting, you know, so what what is that actually, what is the power of labeling and how can that be used or should it be used? It's really effective. It can be really, it can be used for good or evil, like many things, right? You know, one of the most important realities for people in thinking about how to effectively communicate is that you're not the only one communicating, right? That we're inundated with all of these messages. Everybody talks about how many times we get interrupted during the day or how many messages we are. We have to make things stick. And one of the best ways to make things stick is to make them memorable and disruptive and simple. And labeling has a really powerful ability to do that. It is really effective. You know, in the case of Crooked Hillary, one of the reasons why it was so effective is because it tapped into an existing narrative, right or wrong, about Hillary, that there was, you know, there were things in the Clinton's past that had been perceived by many as crooked. And so if I put that label on it, it sticks. There are other times that Trump used labels that didn't kind of tap into that same narrative and they didn't stick. And so you know, that's how to kind of use it effectively, but but they are really powerful. I mean, it, it's hard to get messages, ideas to stick, and uh, and labeling is a really powerful way to do it. Now, one of the other things that I think is really interested in interesting in doing this is being careful not to use other people's labels, right? So, w- when we get into a lot of the most controversial debates that we have today, like use guns as an example, if you are if you use the term gun control or gun violence or gun safety, you are using labels that have a whole lot of baggage already associated with them. And so you're you're you have a whole conversation going on in the background just by using that existing label. And so what we often try and do when we're trying to break through on an issue that 
that has already been labeled in different ways is to come up with a new way of talking about it. What's a new category to use? What's a new label to use that that doesn't have all of that baggage that the existing labels already do? There was an example you used, somebody on your team wrote an article and it was an LGBTQ um, issue and, and they had changed the, the well-known label to something new and different and to your point was very strategic in, in that regard and, and changed the conversation. This was an article from someone on your team had written on, on your blog, the change in language from the stop sexualization of children bill to the don't say gay bill sparked a larger debate about the bill's true intentions and impact on the LGBTQ community. Yeah. I mean, so in some ways the, that made that a powerful shift. So if I say stop the sexualization of children, I'm using a lot of words with a lot of sentences that are not intuitive. If I say don't say gay, first of all, it's got a little bit of that uh, alliteration and and it's uh, or very simple. It's very easy to understand. And so that was a benefit to the people who were advocates on that side of the bill to simplify it and and make it repeatable. You know, it also kind of tapped into something that I think with the constituents that they were trying to reach, it just intuitively resonated much more. And so it took an issue that was kind of hard to understand or maybe felt a little distant and made it much more personal. I mean, we have one of the examples that that we were involved in a long time ago was the was shifting the estate tax to the death tax. And the estate tax was something that an average American didn't really pay attention to because they don't live in an estate. An estate is the wealthy person up on the hill and why not tax them more? But if I talk about it as a death tax, well, everybody dies and nobody likes paying taxes. So all of a sudden, it at least gives you a reason to start to pay more attention to that term. And that's what relabeling can do. What are what can someone do? Because this idea of taking something that's too long-winded, too many words, and how do we make it shorter and powerful, more powerful? And your website is such a great example of how to do that. I mean, it just pits you with these really clear, short, tight windows of words that it's it's you understand immediately what you do and it's very very powerful and clear are there any strategies or tips that you can give people listening to how you can shorten some of these really long-winded um mantras or whatever they may be yeah it's a great question heather uh you know i think i think the the biggest challenge is often separating the most important thing from the other things that are important but not as important i mean when you narrow down, even if you take don't say gay as an example, like there were other aspects of the bill and the debate and the issue that were not included in that phrase, right? They picked one thing to hone in on. And so, you know, what is the one thing that matters most? You can never communicate everything. Uh, And that's often where you end up going from one word to five words to 15 words in a sentence when you try and describe your business or your value proposition, what's the one thing that really matters most? And if you can identify that, then it often becomes much easier to come up with a simple statement to articulate it. And uh, where does emotion play into that? Uh, well, emotion is everywhere. You know, I think sometimes we hear people push back on the idea of being emotional versus being rational. Everything that we do is driven by emotion. All the decisions that we make are driven by emotion. We then rationalize them with, you know, with good reasons. But emotion gets at the idea of how do I make it 
uh, you know, easy for you to like, easy for you to believe, pleasing to your ear is often part of the emotion of it. If I can quiet quitting, it sounds nice to the ear. And so the people on the other side talked about, or, you know, the, the comeback to that was loud layoffs, right? Because we find that we are attracted to those types of, uh, those types of terms, but all of this is about appealing to emotion. I mean, it really is, is pretty rare. It's funny. We do a lot of work with physicians and physicians say, just, just give me the data. I'm a scientist. I want to know the data. And what we do is we present the data in five different ways in different narratives, each of which kind of taps into a different emotion. Uh, and there's always a difference in how they react. And so they are responding to the same data wrapped in different emotional narratives in ways that they don't think that they should be or would be or want to be. And so all of this is about emotion. It's about kind of how does the message make you feel does it resonate with something that you believe already? Uh, because, you know, as a communicator, the first thing that I'm trying to do, I want to get you nodding your head in approval before I'm going to change your mind, before I'm going to introduce something new, or I'm going to tap into something that I know you already believe. But if I can get you nodding your head in agreement, like I'm I'm halfway down the field. It's like sales 101. Couldn't yeah, exactly, with you right? it But it is. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So tell us a little bit, I'm sure we've piqued the interest of many people listening right now, what does it look like to work with you and your company? And, and who is that that right person to reach out to you that might need some help? Our work, a number of different people within organizations, it's often the chief marketing officer or their team's chief communications officer. Uh, we do a lot of, uh, of market research, as I mentioned, as part of our work. And so it's people in insights functions. Increasingly, it's actually in the HR function as well, because companies are recognizing that how they communicate with their employees, with their team members is, is critically important. Uh, or it's the, the CEO themselves who have something important that they want to communicate. Uh, and then when they work with us, you know, our job is to ultimately deliver them the right language, precisely the right words and phrases, but not just the right words and phrases, an understanding of why those words and phrases or that order or that reframing makes a difference. Because if I give you a set of words and say, these are the right words, first of all, you're you're less likely to take my word for it if I haven't explained to you why they work. But also, if you get into a conversation and you need to go beyond those words, you're, you're stuck because I've just given you a set of words. And so we really focus on trying to help people understand what's the obstacle to effectively communicating their message. What's the insight? We call it a, a shift how you need to change your mindset by going from A to B. And here are the words to support that shift so that you can be effective. And so ultimately, we deliver a strategy that explains what to say, what not to say, and why it matters. Well, the work that you're doing is incredibly interesting. It definitely can benefit so many people. Where can they go to find you and find out more? Well, I think the easiest is maslansky.com, which is M-A-S-L-A-N-S-K-Y.com. That's our website. We can take it from there. 
And you can also check out his book, Language of Trust. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for the impactful work and language that you are using. Thank you, Heather. Great questions. Great conversation. Really appreciate it. All right, guys. Until next week, keep creating your confidence. on this journey with me. Hi, I'm here to tell you about a new podcast that I am so excited about, Negotiate Your Best Life, hosted by Rebecca Zung, a part of the Yap Media Network. As a globally renowned narcissist negotiation expert and an attorney recognized by U.S. News as a best lawyer in America, Rebecca shares her invaluable insights and strategies for navigating life's toughest negotiations. By drawing from her own experiences and the wisdom of her high-profile guests, such as Bob Proctor, Mark Mark Victor Hansen, John Gordon, and Rebecca delivers empowering advice that will inspire you to reclaim control of your life. Negotiate Your Best Life is all about how to negotiate your way to greatness. She provides practical guidance on how to break free from toxic relationships, stand up against injustice, and transform chaos into freedom, possibility, and purpose. Many times, the first negotiation you do is with your own in the morning. In the morning is when you wake up, and that's when Negotiate Your Best Life is time for you. It's about to find your way to greatness, conquering obstacles, and creating the life you truly deserve. Get ready to slay thrive and unlock your full potential. Don't believe me? I'm going to go ahead and share some of the reviews that are out there so you can hear and you can believe too. You have helped me so much these last few weeks. I was with a narcissist for two years. She drove me to the point I wanted to take my own life. Listening to you has made a massive difference, and now I know what I'm with. Thank you, Rebecca. Now the recovery. Thank you for gifting the knowledge to believe in myself again. You have unknowingly helped me legally represent myself through criminal, federal, and civil court proceedings with a narcissist. There would be so many people around the world that you're helping without even knowing like me. You saved my life. Emma, 35 years old, Australia. If you are ready to stand up against injustice and transform the chaos in your life into freedom, possibility, and purpose, then check out Negotiate Your Best Life now. Subscribe to Negotiate Your Best Life with Rebecca Zung on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform.